Well, good morning, good morning, good morning. I, I know that we've got a couple of alumni back. Some of you old farts are back for a second victory lap. Glad to have you back and um, welcome, welcome home. Uh, we, we know that there are some uh, friends and some families in town as well. We want to welcome you as well. So glad you're here. Uh, if you're new or if you're joining us here for the first time and, and I have not met you yet, my name is Dan Min and I have the privilege and the honor of serving as the pastor here at ACF and uh, it's my joy to bring God's word here to you uh, today. In fact, if you have your Bibles or a smartphone or some kind of device, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 5 and just hold your place there. Uh, if you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand and uh, we'll have some folks coming around and they can get a Bible to you. And um, just, just hold your place in Matthew 5. We'll get to today's passage in just a moment. But let me ask you a question here today. How many of you, how many of you love a good revenge story? A good revenge story, right? Like, you know, like maybe you've seen this play out in some realm where someone does something bad to an innocent person and that innocent person, you know, gets real strong and scary and then gets even with their offender, right? And gets back at their offender. I mean, is it, when you see that play out, isn't that a good feeling? I mean, just, just forget, you know, that you're a Christian for a second. It's just good to see justice served, right? Like, it's just good to see revenge take its course. We see stories like this playing out in, you know, in blockbuster hits like Gladiator. You guys remember that movie, Gladiator, right? It, it, listen, dudes, if you're a guy and you have not watched Gladiator, just hand in your man card today. And just until you watch the movie Gladiator, we'll give you your man card back, okay? Now, Gladiator, if, if you know this movie, Gladiator uh, is a story about Maximus, who's played by Russell Crowe, a man's man, right? Russell Crowe. And he, he plays this character named Maximus. And the story goes where he has his whole family killed off. And, and once, while he was once a, a revered general in, 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 um, in the Roman uh, army, he, he gets demoted. In fact, he gets sold into slavery, much less. And the story, the whole story of Gladiator is a progression of how Maximus goes from rock bottom to the very top. He, he avenges the death of his loved ones by killing off everyone in his sight, ultimately the evil Roman emperor, he slays him. And all throughout the movie, you can't help yourself but chant with the crowd, Maximus, Maximus, Maximus. At the end, you want to see Maximus win out. You also see this, how about, how about um, the greatest Rocky movie to have ever been made, Rocky Four. I don't care if it's, it's, not, it's, it's not a debate. It's Rocky Four is the best Rocky movie. Some of you guys are shaking your head. There's the door. Just walk on out. Just walk on out. Rocky Four, right? You guys know the story. Rocky Four is a story of, of Rocky Balboa and his best friend in the beginning of the movie. His best friend, uh, Apollo Creed, gets beaten up, brutally beaten and killed by the hands of the, of the secret Soviet weapon, Ivan Drago, right? Like you guys remember that? He gets killed. And as Rocky's sitting there in the ring holding his best friend's body, Rocky decides to go up against Drago, even if the odds are stacked against him, just so that he can avenge the death of his best friend, Apollo Creed. You watch the movie, and you put the two uh, side by side, Rocky Balboa and Ivan Drago, and you say, Rocky's got no shot to win this thing. And yet, you find yourself rooting for the guy, the Italian stallion, right? Like, you want to see him win out. And lo and behold, 
spoiler alert, <laughs> Rocky wins. He wins. He beats Ivan Drago, and the crowd goes absolutely berserk. The, the crowd goes wild. You see, I think our response to stories of vengeance like Gladiator or like Rocky or, or you just, just pick any movie out there or any story out there that lays out this revenge story, I think our response to stories of vengeance like these stories reveals something about our human condition, something that I know is deeply embedded within you and I know it's deeply embedded within me. When we hear a good revenge story, we say things like, well, they had it coming to them. Right? They, they should have known. I, they, they deserved it. Or we say things like karma's a, you know what, you fill in the blank. We're in church, so we're not going to fill in the blank <laughs> explicitly here. But you know, karma's, or, or you say what, what goes around comes around, and we often utter words and phrases like that. You see, I think what that reveals in us is that we are a people of justice, we love justice. We long for justice. We seek after justice. Our hearts are satisfied when justice is rightly served. In fact, if you, if you want to challenge this notion, I want you to think back all the way to your childhood. We see this, this longing for justice stemming all the way back into our childhood. As, as children, we fight for fairness. We fight for fairness. If you have siblings, you know what I'm talking about, right? Like You want to create instant conflict between two kids? Give a toy to one and not the other. Oftentimes what you hear is, that's not what? That's not fair. Why do they get a toy and I don't? That, that's unfair. Now, as adults, we become a little bit more sophisticated in our vernacular and in our approach, and we no longer whine and complain and throw a temper tantrum and say, that's not fair. We have refined our way of, of seeking after justice, and now we say things like, that's not right. It's not right that he got away with that. It's not right that she now has to live with the consequences of someone else's offense. That's not right. We have now moved from justice being an issue of fairness to now an issue of rightness. There seems to be a deep conviction of morality attached to justice. That's why when we see real life injustices play out, I mean, we talked about Rocky Four and, and Gladiator, but when we see real life injustices play out in our society, uh, just, just a few days ago, like, the, like uh, yet again, another mass shooting in Thousand Oaks, California. We look at that and we say, that's not right. Or even just a couple of weeks ago, not too far from here, the synagogue in Pittsburgh, the, 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 the brutality that occurred there, we look at that situation and we say, there's something in us that knows that's not right. We see injustices like that play out all over, all around us maybe even close to home, maybe personally, injustices happen to you personally, and you say to yourself, that's not right. That's not right. In other words, I think there is something hardwired into every human being. If you have a pulse in your body, I believe God, this is something that is hardwired into you that longs and seeks after fairness, justice, and the moral balance of right and wrong. And when that balance is off, we feel it in our core. And we immediately want to fix it. Isn't that true? When that balance of that moral balance of right and wrong is, is off, we immediately feel it in our deepest core and we immediately want to fix, fix it. And that's why, that is precisely why today's passage that we're going to look at rubs so many people the wrong way. 
That's why today's passage is so difficult to process for so many people. We come to a part in the sermon, that, that Sermon on the Mount of Jesus, where many people are familiar with, even those who have not grown up in the church, who have no faith background, have heard these specific words of Jesus in some form or another. And yet, when we try to break it down and try to actually live by these words, what you find is this unavoidable tension rising from within. And my guess is that you're going to start feeling that as we unpack Christ's words here. I might even say that this part of the Sermon on the Mount is one of the toughest parts of the sermon to digest. And it's because there's this tension of wanting to hold on to justice that we know is intrinsically right, and yet trying to live by the words of Jesus. So I want to look at the words of Jesus here this morning and see what he has to say to us here today. It's a relatively short passage, but as I said, it's a tough one. Pick me up in Matthew chapter 5, all the way down to verse 38. It's hard to believe after, what, 12, 13 weeks of this semester, we're still in Matthew 5, right? Hey, that's intentional. We don't, we don't want to go wide. We want to go deep. We want to go deep into the words of Christ. And so Matthew 5, pick me up at verse 31, 38, rather, and I'll carry through to verse 42. If you don't have a Bible in front of you, we'll put the text up here on the screen as well for you to look along with us. Hear the word of the Lord. This is Jesus preaching in the middle of his Sermon on the Mount. He says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Verse 42, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and do the work that you do so well. Would you open our ears to hear only your voice, open our eyes to see only that which you want us to see, and open our hearts to receive all that heaven has to pour out onto us here this morning. We commit these next few moments to you, and it's in the powerful name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. We've all heard that sentiment before, right? Uh, whether you grew up in the church or not, we've heard that sentiment before. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Now notice the first thing that Jesus addresses with this word picture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, is the justice system is the justice system. Now, in the Old Testament, there was a, a law that said if someone injured you or brought harm to you, it was your right to repay them in some way. It, it was right for them to, 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 to take a recompense for the, the offense that was occurred. And so if someone were to knock out an eye or a tooth, I know it's kind of a weird word picture, but that was the Old Testament law. If you were to knock out someone's eye or someone's tooth, the offender would need to pay for that offense with the equivalent, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Now, this served two functions. Number one, it was to ensure that no offense went unpaid for. It was kind of an insurance policy that kept the, the justice balance in check so that we didn't have a bunch of criminals walking around just doing whatever they wanted to do, not caring about, uh, about the offenses that, would, that they were incurring. And so this was kind of an insurance policy for the justice balance to, to keep in check. But number two, it also served as a limiter for the victim. 
It served as a limiter for the victim. Listen, the payment was to be equal to, not greater than the offense. This is important. In other words, this law limited victims from trying to take more than what was actually deserved. By the way, isn't it interesting that that seems to be our natural response in the face of offense? When we're hurt, when we're offended, when we experience some kind of offense, our tendency is to respond in a bigger and badder way. But that, that was the whole point of this law. It prohibited you from doing just that. So you couldn't say, well, you hurt me. Well, in return, I'm going to hurt you and your whole family. Hey, the, the, the law indicated eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Now, this justice system was started in the Old Testament, but it carried over even into the New Testament during Jesus' time, except there was no payment with one's eye or tooth. People weren't dismembering themselves to, you know, to give an eye or a tooth or any, anything like that in place. The recompense was a monetary payment. It, if there was a penalty to be paid, it was a monetary payment. All you had to do was pay the fine. But the system was still in place, one that upheld the value of justice. Now, most of us, we hear that, and we would have no problem with this law, right? Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Seems fair. I mean, if, if you hurt me, it's only right and fair that I hurt you in the same. Ah, that's fine. I don't have to go above and beyond. I won't hurt you more than you hurt me. I at least deserve the right to hurt you the equal amount that you hurt me. So eye for eye, tooth for tooth. We say, that seems, that seems beneficial, perhaps even necessary, right? I, I, we don't want people getting away with doing bad things. We see that happening in our justice system. And what, what's our response? We become enraged. When, when, when there's, no, there's no payment for the penalty of a wrongdoing, we say that's not right. And so we come to a law like this, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And we say, sounds good. Seems fair. Seems just. Let's run with it. But then Jesus hits the brake. Jesus hits the brake and Jesus takes a sharp turn. And in, in his most famous way, he utters these five words, but I say to you, <laughs> Anytime Jesus says these five words, it should cause you to immediately recoil in a little bit of discomfort. Because what Jesus is about to do is challenge what you have always known to be true. What he's about to do is challenge your comfort zone. What he's about to do is challenge your preconceived notions. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Now, let me just clarify something here real quickly before we move on. When Jesus says, do not resist the one who is evil, you might be wondering, who is Jesus talking about here? Who is this evil one that Jesus is referencing? Well, first of all, let me just clarify, it's not the devil. Oftentimes throughout scripture, you'll find Satan being referred to as the evil one. But the original language that's used here is in no way indicating a specific being or a person. And so we can conclude that the evil one that Jesus is saying, do not resist, is not the devil. In fact, James tells us in James chapter 4 to resist the devil, right? And so th th that's not who Jesus is talking about here. Secondly, Jesus is not so much concerned with identifying who the evil person is as much as he is concerned with our response to the evil being done to us. Many people read this verse and we, we're, we're, we're hung up on 
Who's the evil one? Who's my offender? Who's the one who offended me? Who's the one who brought about evil against me? That's not the concern of Jesus. Jesus' concern is do not resist. In fact, the clearer and more simpler translation might be do not resist evil at all. Do not resist evil at all. It doesn't matter who it is or what they're doing. Regardless of the evil being done to you, I want your response to be one of non-resistance. Do not resist. Do not resist evil at all. Now, he fleshes out this concept by giving us three different scenarios. And the first one he goes right into. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, listen, this, this thought process sounds bad enough as is, but I want you to pick up on this. Jesus specifies the right cheek, the right cheek. And that's not by accident. You see, his listeners would have known the significance of being struck on the right cheek. People during that time used their right hand as their dominant hand. And so rarely, if anyone were to strike anyone, it rarely would it ever be with their left hand. It just wasn't a customary thing. And so if someone were to be struck on the right hand, they were using the back of their right hand to strike the right cheek of a person's face. Now, to strike someone with the back of your hand was the utmost sign of disrespect. It was the greatest insult that you can heap on someone. It was incredibly dehumanizing. It was the ultimate form of belittlement. Again, to strike someone's head was disrespectful enough, but to strike them on the right cheek with the back of the hand took it to a whole nother level. Now it was no longer about the physical pain of being struck, but rather the deeply offensive gesture that was being communicated. It would be as if going down the street and going up to an African-American person and, and calling them the N-word. I mean, you're not, you're not striking them per se, but it was that kind of degree, that kind of gesture, deeply offensive to strike someone with the back of your right hand. And Jesus, knowing this, he says, now I want you to turn the other cheek. To which most of us would say, yeah, right. <laughs> that ain't happening. You, you understand the exchange that occurred, Jesus. And he struck me with the back of his right hand. <laughs> Jesus says, no. I want you to turn the other cheek. I want you to sit on that for just a minute. And while you're chewing on that, Jesus gives us a second scenario. He says, and if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Jesus now takes us into the legal court system and he says, if there is some kind of civil lawsuit against you and, and there is someone suing you looking to take your tunic, Jesus says, give him your cloak as well. Now, for, for those of us who don't wear tunics and cloaks here today, that doesn't mean a whole lot to us. It doesn't mean a whole lot to us. Now, during that time, the tunic was considered the inner garment that people wore underneath all of their clothes. It was their inner garment. Now, they would have just... So, you know, they would have mostly been able to get by and make it by life without their inner garment. It, was a, it wasn't a make or break deal. I mean, half the time, I don't know if my kids are wearing underwear. I mean, it's just like, you know, like they're going to the bathroom, like, you don't wear an underwear. It's like, yeah, you know, just, so it, like that, it wasn't, it wouldn't have made a big difference in the same way it doesn't make a big difference for my kids to, to, to the everyday living of these folks' lives. It was an undergarment. Now, on top of that, 
it wasn't very valuable. It wasn't made with the most costly and fine materials of the land. It, 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 it wasn't very costly. It didn't have a tremendous amount of value because it was mostly worn underneath all of their clothes. Now, your cloak, on the other hand, was made of more costly material. This was your outer garment, and this was often used to protect yourself from the elements of nature and the weather. In fact, they would often use this at, as a covering in the evening keep, to keep themselves warm in the cool of the night. This cloak was valuable and had many different functions for everyday life. It was likely that although you can probably get by without your tunic, you sort of needed your cloak. And Jesus says to his listeners, if your offender is looking to take from you what is lesser in value, give to them also what is greater in value. Hey, listen, if you're, I, I, don't, I don't want you to heap greater insult on your offender. I want you to heap greater blessing in the face of offense. I want, you to, I want you to give not just what is lesser in value, but also what is greater in value, your tunic and your cloak. Okay, so Jesus, you're telling me, turn the other cheek. And not only am I supposed to give my undergarments if I'm being sued for it, you're asking me to actually voluntarily give my cloak as well. Jesus, you know, I'd, a brother needs his cloak. You, you know, like, I, I don't know how you expect me to go on with that. Give your tunic and your cloak. And Jesus says, but that's not enough. I got one more scenario to play out for you. And Jesus takes us on the road. In verse 41, Jesus says that if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Now, to us in our everyday language, we use language like go the extra mile, right? Go the extra mile. You know, and we use that in a very positive term. But in this case, in this scenario, there was no positivity in, in, the, in the scenario that Jesus was playing out. In fact, during this time, it wouldn't have been outside of the norm to force people to, to help carry the load of the Roman government. And when I say carry the load, I mean in a very literal and physical sense. I, I, we're talking animals or carriages or packages, or in the case of Simon of Cyrene, a cross. You remember the passion narrative where, where Jesus is walking up the road to Calvary and one of the Roman officials brings over a guy by the name of Simon and he's from Cyrene, Simon of Cyrene, and he forces Simon to carry the load of the cross. And so Simon carries and helps carry the load of the cross. You see, oftentimes the Roman officials took, took it upon themselves and took great liberty to inconvenience the citizens during this time to carry out specific tasks of the Roman government. It was a great act of exploitation and a tremendous abuse of power. It was a tremendous abuse of power, and these Roman officials would force innocent bystanders to carry these loads all the time. Now, in the midst of this, Jesus says, don't just meet the minimum requirement of the one mile. Go with them two miles, even if you are being forced into doing so. Turn the other cheek. Give your tunic and your cloak and go the extra mile. And Jesus wraps up this whole section by saying, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you, which is just another way of stating what he already stated in verse 39. Do not resist the one who is evil. 
Now, upon reading this passage, you might arrive to the same conclusion that I arrived to, which is, there seems to be nothing of what Jesus says here in this passage that seems just. No matter how you slice it, it seems unfair. It seems like I'm getting the shorter end of the deal. God, where, Jesus, where is the justice in this? It doesn't seem right that I have to turn the other cheek after being struck and insulted in the most profoundly hurtful way. It doesn't seem right to give to my offender voluntarily what is most valuable to me, my tunic and my cloak. It doesn't seem right to be forced into carrying a load that's not even mine to carry, but then to go the extra mile even on top of that. None of this seems just. None of this seems fair. None of this seems right. So what are we supposed to do with this? Some of us just, we're like, Jesus, let's go back to that eye for eye thing, tooth for tooth. I like that a whole lot better than turning the other cheek, giving my tunic and my cloak, going the extra mile. Folks, if you've been tracking with us for much of this semester, for much of this series, you know that the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount is for Jesus to teach us a new way to live. But it's not just a new way to live. It is a better way to live. It is a better alternative. Jesus, that's why Jesus says, you have heard it. They will said, you, you've been living in this way. But now I say to you, I say to you, I'm giving you a new and better way to live, a kingdom way to live. You see, you got to understand the people of antiquity were driven by their pursuit after justice. Justice matters to them so greatly. They were truly an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth kind of people. They lived by that mantra. They lived by that ethos. And Jesus was trying to show them this new and better way to live. And the truth is, you want to know what the truth is? We're not too far off from the people of antiquity. We are a people driven by justice, driven by this mantra of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Let's get even. That's why, again, we love revenge stories because we are an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth kind of people. We are not that different from the people of Jesus' time, which is why, which is why when we come to a passage like this, we just don't know what to do with it. We feel so much tension in trying to play out these three different scenarios. And so what is this new and better way? If Jesus is trying to show us this new, okay, I get the new way. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth was old way. Turning the other cheek, you know, uh, giving my tunic and my cloak and going the extra mile, all of that is the new way. Okay, I, I, I get that, but how is that better? If Jesus is trying to teach us a new and better way, what is this new and better way? Well, here it is. Jesus is trying to show us that we are not to be a people driven by justice alone, but by grace first. I don't see people writing this down. You need to write this down. We are not to be a people driven by justice alone, but by grace first. So many people, to, to listen, to a people driven by justice, the message of Jesus was and is even today, I don't want you to be a people driven by justice. 
Not by justice alone, but rather I want you to be a people driven by grace. In other words, I want my people to be marked and recognized not by the justice they serve, but by the grace that they give. I don't want my people to be recognized and marked in the world here today as a people who simply upholds justice, but rather who dispenses grace. We are not to be a people of justice alone, but by grace first. Now, let me just clarify a question that I I know that I had when I read this passage and when I started to flesh this out a little bit. Does this mean then that God does not care about justice? If he is disbanding this whole eye for eye, tooth for tooth mantra, and he's going this, uh, seems to be going this other polar extreme of turn the other cheek and all these other things, does I mean, to me, that might seem like God just doesn't care about justice. I think it's real easy for us to read a passage like this and and say, well, God must not really care about justice after all. Friends, that couldn't be the furthest thing from the truth. Over and over and over again, we see in Scripture that justice matters deeply to the heart of God. In fact, it doesn't just matter to God. Justice is something that is deeply embedded and ingrained into the very character and the nature of God. It is part of who he is. God is a God of justice, which, by the way, is the reason why you and I care so dang much about justice in the first place. Because as people who are made in the image of God, as image bearers of God, we hold a piece of God's heart for justice in us. You want to know why you care so much about justice? It's because as people made in the image of God, God, our image reflects the very character and the nature of God and his heart for justice. And you want to know where we see this most clearly? This heart of justice, God of justice, it's not in the Old Testament. It's not in the ancient Israelites. It's not with the keeping of the Mosaic law all throughout the early pages of scripture in the giving of the law. That's not where we see the God of justice being played out. The place where we see the justice of God so clearly and most powerfully demonstrated is nowhere other than the cross of Jesus Christ. That's where we see the justice of God being played out in clear daylight. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about, listen up here. The Bible tells us that we are born into this world with a sin nature. We are born as sinners. Now, whether you like that or not, whether you believe that or not, whether you buy into that or not, that's what the biblical worldview tells us. That's what scripture tells 